Hi, and welcome to Cosmos Science Daily, where journalists at the Cosmos Newsroom report on the latest research and discoveries and explain the science behind the headline news. Today's newsroom journalist and reformed archaeologist, Amalia Hart, is unpacking thylacines with yours truly, Dr. Sophie Calabretto, applied mathematician and epic thylacine fan, and I'm very excited. So today, essentially, we're talking about Australia's very own Jurassic Park-style de-extinction efforts. So scientists are looking to revive the famous Tasmanian tiger, also known as the thylacine. But there's been talk of doing this before, and some in the scientific community think it's an impossible task. Amalia, what is different this time? Why are we going to bring back that cuddly, not-so-cuddly thylacine to the joy of weirdos like me? (laughs) Well, this time they have a lot more money and a bit more of a precise plan, I guess, is the key differences. Um, The University of Melbourne has received about $5 million in funding, and I think it's going to give them about 10 years worth of research in founding this new lab called the Thylacine Integrated Genomic Restoration Research Lab, which is really nicely abbreviated to Tiger. Oh, I love this. I love a scientific abbreviation that's a little bit clever. I think they should get extra money for those kinds of jokes, to be honest. Oh, me too. (laughs) So the primary focus of the lab is bringing back the Tasmanian tiger, but it's also going to focus on marsupial conservation more broadly so they can bank, you know, the genetic diversity of all these endangered marsupial species. Yeah, sounds pretty cool. Yeah, like that's, I mean, I think that's amazing because the Tasmanian tiger is involved, but also that sounds really significant. So before we delve into the science, because I'm sure if we're resurrecting dead animals, it gets like possibly quite complicated. But can you just give us a quick history of the thylacine for people who have not heard of the Tasmanian tiger or don't really know anything? All right, an abridged history of the thylacine. So (laughs) they were an iconic marsupial predator. They're very sort of, I mean, you know them when you see them, right? They've got those beautiful stripes down their back. They've got these huge jaws, which could, I think, unhinge to about like almost 90 degree angles, which is crazy. That's epic. And they, yeah, serious, serious effort from them. Um, and they lived, so they lived in Tasmania up until the last century, but they also lived on mainland Australia um, up until about two or 3,000 years ago. Oh, my, I had no idea. Yeah. So we know that because there's fossils and bones of thylacines, but also because there's this really cool, vivid cave art up in like the Northern Territory and places like that of the animals. And it's unmistakable that it's them. Interestingly, they think that they died out on the mainland because of the dingo. Now we always think of the dingo as this like iconic Australian species, right? But they were introduced some, I don't know, maybe two or 3000 years ago from Asia. Wait, what? What? Okay. My mind is being blown. I didn't know we had thylacines on the mainland. I didn't know that dingoes were introduced. And in fact, of like jerks. Yeah, interlopers, interlopers. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Okay. So, so my, can I tell you about my last experience with a thylacine? Obviously it's not a real one, but I'm a bit of a computer dork and there was, um, it's not really a game. It's more like an Encarta encyclopedia CD-ROM from the past called Fierce Creatures. And they have footage of the last thylacine in captivity and it's black and white footage. And I just remember being devastated as a small child watching this and going like, and it was just this sad little dude just walking back and forth in a cage and then and then it died out and so we why like why did they die out so was it dingoes or did we do something else on the tasmanian mainland it was european settlers right so they came in and they were setting up sheep farms and trying to kind of build a livelihood and it was commonly thought that the thylacine was hunting their sheep and other livestock so they put a bounty on these creatures so you could go out and kill a bunch of tassie tigers in the bush and then you'd come into town in launston or or hobart and say, look at all these tigers that I killed, give me some money. 
Yeah. Yeah. Pretty bad. Pretty we're bad. Te- so that's, yeah, yeah we suck. We're we terrible really suck. people. We do this all the time. Okay. So we've now destroyed everything with our mates, the dingoes, because we're all terrible people. How are they going to, how do we bring back the thylacine? Because I've only seen Jurassic Park and that is my basic <laughs> reference for any kind of resurrecting extinct animals. Do you know what? It's not actually that far off. You know that opening scene in Jurassic Park when he he comes onto the screen and he's describing the process? It is basically a stepwise process that involves gene editing. So you have to start with a solid Tasmanian tiger genome and a genome is the full complement of genes that any creature has. And it's kind of like a blueprint that tells you how do I build this animal Yeah. Okay. using its DNA. So this step is already done. Um, they've sequenced a few different Tasmanian tiger genomes with varying degrees of success, but some of the best ones come from preserved museum specimens and especially pouch young because they would take these pouch young and they would put them in, in alcohol and the alcohol sort of preserved their DNA in a better way than the taxidermied ones that they chucked on the wall. So they managed to get this really solid genome. So the next step, once you've got that, is that you've got to find what is the Tasmanian tiger's closest living relative so that you can genetically engineer one of its cells into a Tassie tiger cell. And so what is it? I feel like I don't, if it's, it's obviously not a dingo because they've come in and killed all the thylacines. What, what is it? It's, a, it's called a dunnart or a dunnart. I don't even know exactly how you say it, but it's called a dunnart. I don't think I've heard of this before. <laughs> I hadn't before I delved into this story. It's like a little marsupial mouse type creature. It can fit in the, you know, the palm of your hand. It's got beady little eyes. It's very cute, but it's the closest living relative to the Tassie tiger, apparently. And so once you've got that, basically you take one of that creature's cells and you look at its genome and you compare it with the thylacine genome and you see where it's going to differ. You see all the places where it has slightly different genes. Okay. And then, thanks to these amazing scientific technologies that we've developed in the last few decades, we can go in and snip out the bits of DNA in the living Dunnett cell that differ from the thylacine and replace them with the right genes so that then, in theory, you have a living thylacine cell. That is, so that is Jurassic Park, but they used a bullfrog, and then the main issue was that the bullfrog then can change sex, which created like a whole bunch of problems. So, okay. But you remember Jurassic Park very well. <laughs> it's maybe my favourite movie, and I possibly <laughs> only watched it like a couple of weeks ago for the <laughs> thousandth time. Um, so, okay, let's – I don't – I'm not a person who knows a lot about biology or genomes or DNA, you did say we just snip it out and replace it. Like that to me seems like a really simple way of saying something that's actually quite complicated and difficult. Yes, it is quite complicated. And I will preface this with I'm not a geneticist. And this is my kind of basic understanding of the technology. But what they use is this technique called CRISPR-Cas9. And the system basically involves two key molecules that can change DNA. So the first is a protein. It's called Cas9, and it actually occurs naturally in some types of bacteria, mm-hmm. and it helps them neutralize viruses. Um, but in the lab, scientists use it a little bit differently, right? So they take Cas9, and then they also pre-design this RNA sequence within a bigger RNA scaffold. Now, I'll just add in that RNA, <laughs> an explanation of what RNA yeah, is. Yeah, sure. So RNA is similar to DNA, but it codes specifically for amino acids. And so it acts as like a messenger that allows DNA to make proteins. So the scaffold part of the RNA sequence binds to the DNA of the cell you're working with. And then the pre-designed sequence guides the Cas9 protein to the right part of the genome 
which makes sure that it does the snipping at the right point in the genome. And you can also get Cas9 to add in all these other bits of DNA too. So it's a really helpful little guy. Yeah, well, and also just out of curiosity, this CRISPR thing is that thing that people can use to mess with DNA in their backyards, right? Is that what the CRISPR thing is? Yeah, Yeah. there was that guy who like biohacked himself and then really regretted it and was like, I've started a terrible, yeah, there's (laughs) there's some questionable things going on with CRISPR, I believe. But at the the moment we're using it for good and that's the main thing. Okay. Yeah. So we've got a thylacine cell and how do we grow a baby thylacine so that I could have as a pet and I could cuddle it and we could love each other? Oh, it would be really nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. So at that point, you've done the hard work. And the next bit, according to the principal researcher, Andrew Pask, who I spoke to a few weeks ago, is the kind of quote unquote easy part. Once you've got a living thylacine cell, you can just clone it in theory. So cloning, obviously, it's a long and complex process. But my very kind of basic knowledge of it is that you transfer the thylacine DNA into an egg cell that's had its nucleus and DNA removed. The egg then develops into an embryo that contains all those genes, and then you implant the embryo into the womb of a surrogate animal. Um, And obviously we don't have adult thylacines, right? Yeah. Who are you using? (laughs) Yeah, that I don't know, but I assume it would be a similar animal, maybe a Tasmanian devil. But the handy thing about marsupials is that they have pouch young, right? So, you know, their babies only develop in the womb for a certain amount of time, and then they come out and then they spend the rest of their development in the pouch. So you can really easily replicate these pouch conditions in the lab. You just got to whack it in something warm and soft. So I think that step, obviously there's a little bit of, you know, technicalities, but I think that's actually not the hardest part of the, of the process. Okay. That's amazing. So we have basically, we can use a surrogate animal to grow one of these things, steal it, rear it in our lab pouch, and then we all can have pet thylacines. I'm making some very unfair generalizations here. Um, (laughs) That's the theory. So I have a final question. And again, this is really, um, this comes back to Jurassic Park. Is this a good idea? Let's Jeff Goldblum this for a second. It's like, we know that we can. Should we be trying to bring things back from the dead? Because again, it didn't go well in Jurassic Park. That is true. And that is the question. I mean, the argument that the researchers I spoke to made was that, you know, The Tasmanian tiger was the only apex predator on the island of Tasmania. So it kind of kept the ecological balance. And some scientists think that the... So have you heard of the Tasmanian devil facial tumor disease? I have, yes. Yeah, it's ravaging the population of Tasmanian Mm. devils on the island. It's, It's a horrific disease. And some scientists think that... The reason it emerged was because the population was blooming because there was no apex predator. So they didn't, it didn't control, the Tasmanian tiger wasn't around to control them. Um, And, you know, there are anecdotal, there is anecdotal evidence of this working in other kinds of places. I mean, not de-extinction, but reintroduction of an apex predator. One of the most famous examples is Yellowstone National Park. Mm -hmm. So all the wolves in Yellowstone were culled in, in and around the 20s and the ecosystem went massively downhill because there was no predators for the elks they were overeating the vegetation the riverbanks were eroding it was disrupting the river ecosystems the whole thing was kind of going to pot Mm -hmm. so they reintroduced the wolves back in 1995 and i think the idea is that that apex predator brought the populations back under control it stabilized the riverbanks it stabilized the ecosystems and the idea is that you know you need that balance you need that apex predator otherwise everything else just gets out of control 
So realistically, can we do this in Tasmania? If we manage, if this is successful and we can breed thylacines, will we be reintroducing them into the Tasmanian ecosystem so that they can stop all the Tasmanian devils dying from face tumours? I think that there would need to be a lot of consultation. I mean, what what the what the researchers were saying to me was, you know, we haven't even gotten to that stage. We might have a Tasmanian tiger in ten years' time. Then we have to think about what do we do with it? Do we actually reintroduce it? Do we breed a population and pop it back on the island? And to be honest, I anticipate some serious resistance. <laughs> sure, but um, you never know. You never know. Anyway, thank you so much, Amalia. That was amazing. I, I'm just so pleased that someone would talk to me about thylacines for such a long time. And thank you to everyone for listening. So be sure to keep an ear out for our next instalment of Cosmos Science Daily. This podcast was brought to you by Cosmos, a publication of the Royal Institution of Australia. 